In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord God, Heavenly Father, who by the mouth of Simeon declared that Jesus Christ is set for the fall and rising of many in Israel, we beseech you enlighten our hearts with true knowledge of your Son, that in perils and adversities we may not be offended by him, but cling to him and rise with him and abide in him, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Right, you may be seated in the congregation at prayer this week because school is resuming on Tuesday. We return to where we had been in the catechism, which is the Lord's Prayer, and specifically this week, the fifth petition, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, and the sixth petition, and lead us not into temptation. Under the fifth petition... Notice the emphasis that all of the weight is placed on the necessity to receive the forgiveness and grace of God that we do not deserve, which is the backbone for every good gift that he gives to us that we don't deserve. And learning to receive this and believe it, so we too will sincerely forgive and gladly do good to those who sin against us. In the sixth petition, please notice when we're praying and lead us not into temptation, this very comforting assertion, God tempts no one. So you may be tempted, you may be assaulted in your faith, you might even be tempted to believe that God hates your guts because of what's going on in your life. It ain't so. Through any event that goes on in our lives, there are most often two wills at work. God's will to preserve, strengthen, save, draw us closer to himself, and the devil's will that we not trust God, that we rebel, that we turn away from him, that we accuse him as Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden. God tempts no one. He never says, don't trust me. So we pray in this petition that he would guard and keep us so that devil, world, and sinful nature may not deceive or mislead us into false belief, despair, and other great shame and vice, which are all related to faithlessness, mistrust of God. Although we are attacked by these things, we pray that we may finally overcome them and win the victory. Remember, every petition of the Lord's Prayer is first a promise of God to us. It is God's word. It is his promise to us. We claim those promises in prayer. That's why we can pray with the certainty, amen, amen, it shall be so. So because of the fifth petition in particular, Galatians 5.17 is the verse for the week. And it speaks, using an interesting word, lusts. The flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit lusting against the flesh. What does this mean? This is the Holy Spirit. And what St. Paul is talking about here is the spiritual warfare that is constantly going on in the life of the Christian and in the life of the church. It is the sinful flesh that desires to dominate the will. 
Conversely, it is the Holy Spirit who is at war with that fleshly desire to dominate the will. The flesh is coercive as the flesh's ally, Satan, is coercive. The spirit is not coercive. But the spirit does, by word and sacrament, received in faith, fight against the flesh's desire to dominate the will. So the flesh lusts against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. These are contrary to one another. So that you do not do the things that you wish. And here the you, St. Paul is talking about Christians. So if you believe that if you're a true Christian, a sincere Christian, a devout Christian, you will have no struggles with the sinful flesh. That is a lie. The devil uses that lie to undermine our conscience and the comfort and the certainty of faith that we belong to Christ, that our sins truly are forgiven, that we are not being cast off. But that the idea that the struggle with sin and our stumbling and falling into it sometimes and oftentimes leads to that scandal of our conscience. We pray with David, you know, create in me a clean heart, O God, renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of thy salvation, uphold me with thy free and generous spirit. So it is the Spirit of God who brings peace to troubled consciences by the gift of God's forgiveness and grace in Christ. So this does describe something very significant to, to us in our daily life as Christians. Let's speak it together. The flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. All right, and then in the narratives uh, post-Christmas, they will be the post-Christmas narratives with the epiphany of our Lord, the flight into Egypt, the slaughter of the holy innocents, uh, the holy family returns to Nazareth, and then Saturday's Old Testament reading is actually anticipating next Sunday, which we've been doing for years and years uh, the baptism of our Lord, the first Sunday after the Epiphany. But in the historic series, uh, the first Sunday after the Epiphany is the boy Jesus at 12 years of age in the temple. So we're observing that this coming Sunday. So we'll have Epiphany on Saturday night. And if you weren't here for the first service, I'll repeat it again here. Sergio from Romania, who's studying at the Fort Wayne Seminary, is going to be here uh, he's going to read the Old Testament and epistle. He's also going to assist me in the sermon. So I will have the sermon, but he will be a part of that sermon on Saturday night at 5. He is also uh, going to give a little talk, a little Q&A about where he came from and what brought him to the seminary and European Christianity and so forth. Uh, afterwards, at an Epiphany soup and or chili uh, supper, there are three names on this of people attending. I'm going to send it around. We also need 
a few people to volunteer to bring a crock pot or two of, you don't need a crock pot, Marcy, we'll exempt you, uh, of chili or, or soup. And um, so that's coming up Saturday at 5 o'clock. Uh, the other thing I wanted to, to mention, tomorrow, to, to, to this afternoon at 5 o'clock is the New Year's Eve service. It's a totally different service and preaching and readings than tomorrow morning. Uh, one of the features of this service this afternoon at the end of the year is a service of corporate confession with the pastors administering individual absolutions at stations in the back for the choir area and on either side for the main nave. Um, tomorrow is the New Year's Day. It's actually the eighth day. It's the celebration of the circumcision of our Lord and the naming of Jesus. And at least a part of the sermon will uh, talk about Pope Francis. So if you're wondering what in the world would Pope Francis coming into the New Year's Day circumcision of our Lord uh, service and sermon have to do with the circumcision? Well, you'll have to come tomorrow at 9.30 and find out, okay? Uh, before continuing, and any questions about any of those uh, things, okay? Uh, before going into um, our Bible study ongoing on the Christmas narratives, we have a son of the congregation, Pastor Eamon Ferguson. Come on down. It's like the price is right. And uh, as you know, the Gainer Scholarship Fund um, supports especially sons of the congregation. Um, and we do so kind of like after the fact of their education when they have been declared See, they have this ceremony at the seminary placement, and they say, Axios, he is worthy. And then uh, he is given his call at the call service. The first part, I actually, they don't say Axios, but that's essentially what it means, right? That he is worthy, then he's certified, and then there's the call service and ordination. So with student debt incurred in the process of studying to become a pastor, in this case, uh, our congregation, the Gainer Scholarship Fund, has been used in support of Pastor Ferguson as well as Pastor Kyle Burge. So, welcome. Thank you. It's always a pleasure to be able to get back here. It's so rare nowadays uh, that it's an even greater pleasure to be able to be here. Every time I'm here, there are newer faces, so I can only assume that mine is new to you who are new to me. Um, I grew up in this congregation. My family still attends this congregation. Uh, I went to the seminary many years ago. <laughs> I've been in Mound City, Missouri now for uh, five and a half years. And uh, Mound City is upper northwest corner of Missouri, right on the border of Nebraska, Iowa, and Kansas. I can see all of them from the top of the mound where my house is. It's my privilege to serve in that small community at Holy Trinity Lutheran Church. Um, that's a church I inherited with many challenges. Uh, when I arrived, it was a congregation in the midst of turmoil. Uh, it was a tri-point parish that had been 
somewhat forcibly merged uh, by the hand of my predecessor and by uh, significant flooding in the river bottoms. And um, I came in at the end of a $1.5 million building expansion. And then the first thing that happened was that the Missouri River flooded and the entire bottom was flooded and the town of Mound City flooded. And uh, water stood for eight months. So I didn't receive a trial by fire as much as a trial by water. But it's been a wonderful place to be. We've overcome a great many challenges there. The congregation has grown. Uh, many of you already know all of this. Uh, the latest update that I can give you from Mound City is that the congregation continues to grow and to thrive. Uh, this is one of the first years that we're, not that we are concerned with finances, but we're finishing over $20,000 in the black, one of the first years we have done that. Uh, the numbers are growing, and of course we don't really care about the numbers, but they are growing. We've got people that are coming in now from over 45 minutes away just to come to church in a small town of 1,200 people up in the bluffs. Um, I don't take any credit for that. I say of my work in Mount City what Luther said about his work in the Reformation. I preach the gospel and I drink beer and the Lord does the rest. <laughs> but You don't look like you drink much beer. I have a good fast metabolism. Ask my wife. It's very unfair is what I've heard. <laughs> uh, but lots of work still going on. The biggest news is that um, part of this big expansion project I inherited um, was a lot of shoddy work. We spent a, a million and a half dollars on a building that continues to fall apart. The ceiling of the sanctuary is caving in. Uh, and we still don't have pews. But pews come next week. So the Lord has all kinds of little blessings that arise. Um, I continue to stay active uh, academically. I've been down to Fort Wayne to present at symposia. I write papers. Uh, th three of my uh, big projects at the moment are um, working on a class called the Catechumenate, which is a restructure, or a, not a restructuring, but a, a revamping of the early church uh, method of education in the church, bringing people into the faith and catechizing them um, of, at, at all ages. So that's been a big project of mine. It's in its fifth year as, as sort of a field run, and um, it's been adjusted every year. My class last year asked so many good questions, I had to completely redesign the class, which I like. They apologized for uh, I'm working on a translation of the Didache, which has been completed. The Didache is a first century Christian document, the teaching of the Twelve Apostles. I spend every other Friday out at Conception Abbey in Conception, Missouri, where the printery house is. If you've never ordered cards or stationery from the printery house, you should. They're fabulous. I use the library there because it's bigger than mine. And the monks are nice. Um, so I've translated that document and I've begun working on commentary. I have one complete chapter done and that has been submitted to a publishing house and I'll hear back from them in a couple months. Um, but I may end up being published too, so that's a big project. And then I'm engaged with speaking engagements. Uh, I have one next weekend 
uh, at Holy Cross Lutheran Church in Carlisle, Iowa. And the only reason that you need to know that is because that is the church where Jim and Kathy Verge go. And if you know the Verges, uh, I will be seeing them next weekend presenting on the harrowing of hell at their church for the youth conference. So uh, the title of my presentation, which has not passed the approval of my wife yet, because this is the first she's hearing about it, is called What the Hell? So... Um, <laughs> You know, but I certainly appreciate all of you. I appreciate the uh, generosity that this congregation has shown to me, both um, in the grace of God that I received here while attending the catechesis of Pastor Bender, the gifts of God in word and excuse me in word and sacrament, and also the financial offerings that you have so graciously continued to extend to me and to my family in assisting us to re- repay the loans um, that we took out to be able to attend the seminary and to be able to serve in Mound City. If you were unaware, I do uh, my best to send regular updates by letter. And there is a bulletin board right out in the back with a big giant picture of my face and a big giant copy of the letter that I send. And... um, uh, Periodic updates will be posted there. You can read all about the happenings in Mound City and all about those fun things. I'll send pictures to and fancy bulletins and all of that. So, And if you're really nosy, you can just go to the church's website and you can look at all of that stuff there too. So thank you very much for the time, for all that you do for me and have done. Thank you. All right, we are going to uh, turn to Luke chapter 1. And um, we ended last Sunday on Christmas Eve morning with Mary remaining with Zechariah and Elizabeth about three more months after she had arrived there. And no doubt for the birth of John. I'd like to begin this morning by looking briefly at both canticles of Mary and then of Zechariah. The Magnificat is in chapter 1, verses 46 through 55, the Song of Mary. And as we noted last week, I contend that that is the very greeting inspired by the Holy Spirit that Mary prophesied when she greeted Elizabeth and which was the cause of Elizabeth's prophesying concerning Mary and the cause of the baby John leaping for joy in Mary's womb. As you know, Zechariah had been struck mute from the time that Gabriel announced to him during the temple service, the hour of the evening sacrifice, that the Lord had heard his prayer, forgiveness and salvation were coming, the Messiah was coming, and he and Elizabeth would be the parents of that forerunner. He doubts the angel's message, and he is struck mute. I would contend also that he was not only struck mute, unable to speak, but he was deaf also. Um, And in the narrative we'll see today, they make signs to him. Well, if, if there's no need to make signs to someone who can hear. Okay, so deafness and muteness, if there is such a word, go together. 
because faith comes by hearing, and then out of the faith of the heart, one confesses. So I want you to look, though, at the canticles, and uh, Dr. David Scares made the comment uh, numerous times that the origin of Christmas carols is the Gospel of Luke. Uh, but what's characteristic of Luke's Christmas carols, whether it's the Magnificat, the Benedictus, the Nunc Dimittis, the Gloria in Excelsis, is there's, there's a lot more substance in them than in many Christmas carols. I want you to understand that in both of them, there's a confession of sin, a confession of unworthiness. There is in both of them a total extolling of and giving glory to the Lord for who he is and for the salvation that he gives. In Zechariah's Benedictus, there is um, an epilogue, you might call it, to the Benedictus, wherein he specifically addresses or prophesies to his infant John at eight days of age. You, my child, will be called the prophet of the highest. Okay? So we'll note that. And he says in those words how John will be about the ministry of preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sins, turning people away from their self-centeredness to the uh, self-giving love of God in Christ and to the welfare of their children then. And finally, and this is perhaps most important of all, both of these canticles anchor their confession of faith in the promises of the prophets and the patriarchs of old. Which is to say, then, that the church's song, the church's confession of faith, not only rests upon the foundation of God's word, but speaks back to God and to the world what God in his word has spoken to us and what has caused the miracle of faith in our hearts. Okay? So when St. Paul says, I believe, therefore I have spoken, you see that in the examples of the Magnificat and the Benedictus. All right, so the Magnificat, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. You need no Savior if you have no sin. Mary calls the Lord God her Savior. For he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant, something he does for all of us. Behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. That's why Elizabeth said, blessed are you among women, and why we continue to say that of Mary today, and of every Christian to whom by the word and spirit of God Christ has come to us. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name and his mercy. So the reference to him being Savior, and now his mercy is on those who fear him. You can hear the description of what faith is according to the catechism, to fear and to love and to trust in God above all things. So those who fear him from generation to generation, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. There is the attack against any notion of salvation by works as being why God loves us or saves us. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. And think of lowly 
Uh, and this is not just economic lowliness. This is spiritual lowliness of a broken and contrite heart. He's filled the hungry with good things. The rich, those who need, who believe they need no such gifts of salvation, he sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Now here's the foundation. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. So he spoke to the fathers, not just Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, although the promise made to Abraham is foundational, but all of the holy prophets, as Zechariah will also indicate in his Benedictus. And to Abraham's seed, now St. Paul makes the point that the seed of Abraham is not in the plural, but in the singular, for it refers to Christ who is the seed of Abraham. So that all of the promises, when we talk about Jesus fulfilling the law, um, and according to the law and the prophets, that use of the word law there refers to the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, which contains not just laws or commandments, but many, many promises, as well as narratives which embody what Christ will do and will be fulfilled in what he does. So... The totality of what the prophets and the patriarchs have written, not just the laws, but also the promises, find their fulfillment in the seed of Abraham. So there's the Magnificat. And then look at the Benedictus. This is in verses 68 through 79. Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Highlighted this in the past, it's worth noting again, this man who doubted the word of the Lord, which he should have believed when Gabriel presented it to him, because it was an answer to the liturgy of the temple that he was praying, this man who doubted now speaks with such certainty that though Jesus, the Son of God, is still only three months' gestation in Mary's womb, he speaks as if the redemption wrought by Christ upon the cross has already taken place. He has visited and redeemed his people. And Christ is the horn of salvation, which he has raised up in the house of his servant David, which indicates he's son of David. And now notice, this is just like we had at the end of the Magnificat, as he spoke to our father, to Abraham and his seed forever. Now here, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, who have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies, the enemies of sin, death, Satan, hell, and be saved from the hand of all who hate us, to perform the mercy to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant. So notice how many times the word of God is mentioned here. Verse 70, as he spoke by his holy prophets. And then here, verse 72, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath, another reference to the word, which he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him, worship him, without fear of judgment, condemnation in hell, 
in holiness and righteousness, then the holiness and righteousness is the holiness and righteousness of Christ. Luther articulates that in the second article explanation that we had this past week. To serve him in everlasting righteousness, innocence, and blessedness. And since it's the everlasting righteousness, innocence, and blessedness of Christ, we need not fear divine judgment. Uh, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And now the words 76 through 79 are addressed to John specifically. Eight days of age, you child. So you can imagine Zechariah holding baby John up. He's newly circumcised. You child will be called the prophet of the highest. Sent by God the Father. That reference to the highest. Again, remember how Gabriel in the annunciation to Mary said that the power of the highest, the Holy Spirit sent from the Father, would come upon her. You'll be called the prophet of the highest. You will go before the face of the Lord. That's speaking of the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, to prepare his ways. And what will you do? To give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins. In Jeremiah, it says, no longer shall they say, know the Lord. For they all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. Why? Because I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. And I point that out just as one of many references that could be looked at to indicate how both Mary in her Magnificat and Zechariah in the Benedictus breathe the language of the scriptures. This is not foreign material. This is the recasting uh, of what the prophets have foretold, and it's the recasting of it as fulfilled. And both Mary and Zechariah are making a confession of faith. So the knowledge of salvation to God's people comes by the remission of their sins. Through the tender mercy of our God, that would be a reference to God the Father, with which the day spring, a reference to God the Son, the day spring from on high, the dawn of a new day, has visited us to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Notice how the Benedictus at the end echoes what the Christmas Eve Old Testament reading was. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. All right. So let me pause. I just wanted to give um, an overview and highlight of these two canticles before going on. So I'll pause to see if you have any question about the language or uh, comment that you'd like to make, where is the... Oh, I have it here. Thank you. Paul. Uh, yes, a question about the language. We can hear you. Back off a little bit. Okay. Uh, Luke 2, uh, 67 and 8, uh, appreciating uh, that Zechariah... Uh, was uh, filled with the Holy Spirit, and he was prophesying. Verse uh, 68, uh, he says, Blessed the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Redeemed, past tense. Uh, uh, the crucifixion, uh, resurrection uh, from the dead uh, has not yet taken place. Uh, what should I be thinking properly about that? Yeah, I, that's what I tried to mention. He speaks with such certainty it is as if the atonement on the cross has already taken place. Because when God speaks, 
It is so. Even if the event has not yet taken place. God speaking through Zechariah. Uh, God speaking through the prophets. The other prophets. And God speaking through Zechariah. What, what Zechariah is doing here is confessing his faith in the promises of the redemption that will be wrought by this child in his suffering and death upon the cross. He has visited and redeemed his people. As I've said many times in the past, the atonement of Christ reaches both backward and forward in time. So some people say, well, you know, I understand that now for us, we're saved by what Jesus did. But what about Abraham? What about Isaac? What about Adam? They too were saved by the death of Christ. Well, how can that be? He hadn't died yet. Because the event of the cross transcends, it happened in history. April 3rd, 33 AD, but it transcends history and is the central event of our existence. That's why Zechariah speaks with such um, certainty and finality. Okay, good. Other questions? All right, let's take the narrative itself of the um, birth of John. Verse 57, and, and by the way, you know, even though 56 says that Mary remained about three months and then she returned, um, it is not Luke's interest, while Mary is blessed, to, to, to make the focus upon Mary's presence there for three months and at the birth and at the circumcision. Because his point and his emphasis is to say, here, the word of the Lord through the angel Gabriel to Zechariah and Elizabeth has come to pass. The forerunner who will prepare the way for the Lord's coming is born. It's not about Mary at this point, even though I would argue she was there as a witness to it. All right, so Elizabeth's full time came for her to be delivered, and she brought forth a son. When her neighbors and relatives heard how the Lord had shown great mercy to her, because remember, she had been barren, they rejoiced with her, which is totally appropriate. And this will end up being a rejoicing not just at the birth of a child, but this child is unique because this child from before his conception is called by the name of the Lord to be prophet of the Most High and to prepare the way for the Lord's coming. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit more about prophecy in a minute and the inspiration of Mary and Zechariah by the Holy Spirit, but hold that for a second. Now, so it was on the eighth day, which is the day after birth when the child is circumcised and named, they came to circumcise the child and they would have called him by the name of his father Zacharias in the absence of any other instruction that would have been the practice. And his mother answered and said, No, he shall be called John, which, by the way, means the Lord is gracious. He was not only gracious to Zechariah and Elizabeth in the birth of this child, but he is gracious in that this child, as the forerunner of the Christ, is going to prepare his way and usher in the kingdom of God. So, no, he shall be called John. But they said to her, there is no one among your relatives who is called by this name. So they made signs to his father what he would have him called. As I mentioned earlier, 
why I argue that he couldn't hear. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, saying, his name is John. And they all marveled. Now, the writing, his name is John, is a confession of faith in the word of God that he had formerly doubted when it was delivered to him by the angel Gabriel. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke praising God and that song of praise is the Benedictus. Just like Mary greeted her cousin Elizabeth, not just with howdy cuz, but the door opens, she sees six months pregnant Elizabeth, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. So here, his name is John, he writes, immediately his tongue is loosed and he's not simply emoting like a charismatic with, uh, with nonsensical babblings. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. He has visited and redeemed his people. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us. So why does Luke do it the way he does? He doesn't interrupt the narrative with the very, these very full songs and confession of faith, but he allows the narrative to play out. So immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed and he spoke praising God. Psalm 51, which was the psalm that David prayed after he was confronted by Nathan, his pastor, called to repentance. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. We have a tendency to think that praise of God is simply praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise God, praise God. I'm not against saying praise the Lord, understand. But at the heart of that praise is what you have in David, to confess one's sin rightly and to claim the promises of God's mercy and forgiveness in Jesus. That is the highest praise of God. It's just like the greatest honor and glory of God is given when preachers preach the gospel. That is praising God and proclaiming the glory of God. So you have coming up, you know, in Luke chapter 2, the angel of the Lord appears to the shepherds and the glory of the Lord shines around them and they're terrified, sore afraid. And the angel says, fear not. There is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And the sign will be the swaddling cloths and the manger bed. Those words are praise words. Why? Those words are praise words because those words proclaim the gospel. Do you follow what I'm saying? So it doesn't, a, a, a song or a sermon doesn't have to have hallelujah in it, which most people don't know what it means anyway, which means praise Yahweh. Uh, but praise songs, praise preaching is that which gives all honor and glory to Christ and proclaims the gospel. All right. So, verse 65, then fear came on all who dwelt around them and all these sayings. Now, that's significant, and it's going to connect with what I said we want to talk about. How were Mary and how were Zechariah inspired by the Holy Spirit? All these sayings were discussed throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all those who heard them, these their sayings, kept them, these their sayings, in their hearts, saying, what kind of child will this be? 
and the hand of the Lord was with him. Now, what I'm trying to emphasize there for you is can you imagine nine months prior to the birth of John, the congregation of Israel is gathered at the temple outside by the altar of burnt sacrifice for the evening sacrifice. The priest, Zacharias, is officiating. He takes the coals into the altar. He places them on the altar of incense. He sprinkles the incense. And he prays as Daniel had in Daniel chapter 9, confessing his sins and the sins of the congregation because that's what the liturgy called for, and praying for the sending forth of Messiah. The Old Testament, in the liturgy of the Old Testament, a lot of it is, you could summarize it in, come Lord Jesus. Okay? Praying for the coming of Messiah. Gabriel appears to him. The Lord has heard your prayer. Zechariah doubts. He struck mute. He comes out of the temple where the holy place and the altar of incense, and he can't speak. Remember, earlier on in Luke, he lingered. The people marveled that he lingered so long. What's going on? And then when he came out and he's mute, they perceive that he has seen a vision. What does this mean? Do you think that would have been talked about? Okay? Not only that, you know, if Verla gets pregnant, people in the congregation are going to talk about that. <laughs> because she's only had one child, and that child, how old is Angela? Oh, man, I'm an old man. Okay? So Zechariah and Elizabeth is barren. They're going to talk about that and that it happened in the context of the liturgy of the temple. This is big time news, see. And then sure enough, I mean, the ch she gets pregnant and then she has the child. And then the father who had been mute for all of these months. Do you think people knew about that in the Judean village and in Jerusalem? Absolutely. Suddenly... <laughs> At the circumcision of that child, his name is John, and he prophesies this prophecy. This is an example of good gossip. They said and repeated all of the sayings that were spoken by John. The sayings that were spoken by cousin Mary when she came to visit in the Magnificat. So the language of the Magnificat and the language of the Benedictus are part of the sayings concerning John and, at this moment, the yet unborn Jesus. Then, fast forward. This is being talked about. What does it say of the shepherds? Well, look at Luke chapter 2, verse 10. The angel said, Do not be afraid. Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, that's the gospel, good tidings, which will be to all people, for there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. Notice how the angel of the Lord to the shepherds is highlighting things that both Mary and Zechariah had held up to us 
about him being the savior of the lowly, the brokenhearted, the despised, the outcast, and so forth, you will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, rags, lying in a manger. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, the peace of sins forgiven, and goodwill, God's grace toward men, toward mankind. So it was, when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, that the shepherds said to one another, let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us through the preaching of the angel of the Lord. There's born to you a Savior, do not be afraid. You'll find him wrapped in swaddling cloths. And they came with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now, when they had seen him, what are they seeing? They are seeing, Paul, word of God through the angel Gabriel fulfilled in that event, right? When they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. Now, we are a short distance, a couple of miles from Jerusalem when we're in the Judean hillsides around Bethlehem and Jerusalem. They made widely known, no Twitter, no email, no telegraph, oral proclamation. And those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying, praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. Okay? So, going back to the inspiration of the spirit of Mary, who prophesies the Magnificat, or of Zechariah, who prophesies the Benedictus, or to this first Sunday after Christmas, it had been revealed to Simeon by the Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Simeon went to Peace Lutheran Academy. He knows how to do arithmetic. Okay? Calculation of John is going to be presented in the temple 40 days after his birth. We're not there yet, but he, he would have been. Zechariah and Elizabeth would have brought him there at 40 days of age for his presentation, for Elizabeth's purification. Do you think they talked about these things? Simeon knows the Christ is to be born. Okay? And then there's the testimony of the shepherds making widely known, so he knows the child, too, is going to be presented in the temple. So when Mary and Joseph appear with Jesus, unsuspecting, Simeon lifts him up in his arms and says, Lord, now I can die in peace. My eyes have seen your salvation. But I'm just talking about here, we've got the word of the prophets and the promises from, given to the patriarchs. But then that is also the basis for the proclamation of the angel Gabriel, the angel of the Lord to the shepherds, and the inspiration of Mary and Zechariah. And all of these things contribute to someone like Simeon and all other people knowing Christ is come. You made my point about John being presented. I mean, that's I me, mean, a priest, an old priest, coming and present his 
That's right. So these things were not done in a corner. As we say so often uh, about, you know, the death and resurrection of Jesus were not done in a corner. Neither was the birth. Uh, so when we say in the Nicene Creed, you know, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, the third day he rose again from the dead, according to the scriptures, just as the scriptures said. We could actually say that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit according to the scriptures. You know, he suffered and died according to the scriptures. He rose from the dead the third day according to the scriptures. So in those events, you're seeing word of God fulfilled. This is why I love this about Luke's gospel. At the end, he has Jesus who has opened the minds and the hearts of the disciples on the road to Emmaus on Easter Sunday. And then on Easter night, he's in the upper room. He also opens up the scriptures to the uh, to the apostles in the upper room. And one of the things he says to them is, he stands before them, and he says, his wounded hands and side, resurrected, these are the words. Now, I'm just going to stop there. Seeing him incarnate, enfleshed, crucified and risen, these are the words. You follow that? So in the, the seeing of him, his incarnation, his birth, his death, his resurrection, these are the words that I spoke to you when I was with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And then he showed them his hands and his side. And they were glad that they saw the Lord. So this close connection, Paul, between word of God and event the events of salvation are absolutely critical. If Christ is not raised from the dead, you're still in your sins. However, what made the events possible? The almighty word of God. That's very important. Beth. I was wondering, if this was so widely spoken about, how come it took King Herod, you know, not clued in until the wise men came why didn't he kind of know about this already? Okay, good question. What about Herod? So um, in the chronicle of events, the wise men are going to come right after the 40-day presentation in the temple. Okay? Uh, while Herod, remember, Herod is not exactly the most devout person there is. Um, but uh, nor, nor does he particularly care about the lowly and the things that they are saying. Okay? But he does notice important people, like magi who come to town, okay? Um, make no mistake about it, though, where, what did Herod do? He went to the scribes. Where is the Christ to be born? So the magi only had access, likely, to the Torah that spoke of the star, but not of the minor prophets like Micah, okay? All right, so the child grew and became strong in spirit, that's verse 80, and was in the deserts till the day of his manifestation to Israel. Doesn't mean he crawled out there at eight days of age and never returned, but it does mean that he had an extremely low profile. And then um, I want to pick up, and then we'll open it up for any further questions, in Matthew chapter 1, Nazareth is in Galilee, 
It's about 70 miles or so north of Bethlehem. Jesus is not yet born at the birth of John. There's going to be six more months. So while in Judea there's going to be widespread chatter, uh, Joseph is yet in the dark. He is betrothed, which means he is legally married to Mary. He is of the house of David, a descendant of King David. So I would argue that in terms of the sequence of events, Mary, who immediately after Gabriel announced the birth of Jesus to her, goes to Judea to be with her cousin and is there for three months. That after the birth of John, she travels back to Nazareth, again, 70 miles or so, and she shows up three months pregnant. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. This is a different evangelist. This is not Luke, this is Matthew. But Matthew's words agree with Luke's words. And Matthew and Luke's words agree with the prophet Isaiah, Behold, a virgin shall conceive. Then Joseph, her husband, notice, it doesn't say then Joseph, her fiancé. Joseph, her husband, being a just man. This means that he is righteous by faith. What does he believe in? He believes in the gospel. He's a devout believer. Not wanting to make her a public example, which is a euphemism for not wanting to make a public charge of adultery against her because the punishment of which would be death by stoning, was minded to put her away, which means divorce her, secretly. I'll make no accusation. I'll just divorce her secretly, which he could have done with a certificate of divorce according to the Torah without giving a reason. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. So while Matthew in his narrative testifies to the virgin conception of the Son of God by the Holy Spirit in verse 18, it is here in verse 20 that the angel of the Lord in a dream makes that known to Joseph. And here's where, Paul, just as words are fulfilled in events and serve to ground faith in the Lord, so do events. In other words, when we encounter things, when the biblical personalities encounter things from the Old Testament, not only words, but events themselves that are so similar to what they're going through. That is so that their faith is also reinforced by those events. What do I mean here? Who is the prophet in the Old Testament, perhaps, more than any other, to whom the Lord revealed himself in dreams? Joseph. Joseph 
interpreted dreams. The Lord revealed himself to Joseph in dreams. Here's a New Testament Joseph. He doesn't get the angel Gabriel appearing like he appeared to uh, Zechariah because Gabriel appeared to Zechariah like Gabriel appeared to Daniel at the hour of incense, the evening sacrifice in the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 9. Instead, the angel of the Lord appears to him in a dream the way the Lord appeared to Joseph in the Old Testament. You see, the re it's like deja vu all over again, so to speak. But of course, whatever the, whatever the apparition is, it, whether an angel in a dream or a more substantial vision, as in Gabriel before both Mary and uh, Zechariah, what they say must agree with Moses and the prophets. Okay, so that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. As was indicated both in Luke's testimony and now here, the name Jesus means he is the Lord, Yahweh, who appeared to Moses at the burning bush, and he is Savior. He is salvation. That's what Jesus means. That's the proper name. And as John was given the name John prior to his, the day of his birth, but then at his circumcision was given that name. So the Son of God's name at his birth and circumcision is going to be Jesus according to what the angel of the Lord said. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying. And here is the explicit reference to Isaiah 7.14. Behold, a virgin shall be with child and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. El, the suffix, means God. So the with us God, kind of literally. Emmanuel, the with us God. That's who he is. Or as we would say it, God with us. Which agrees also with the name Jesus, that he is the Lord, and the Lord, he is God. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife, and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. So the fact that he rose from sleep, did what the angel of the Lord told him to do, did not divorce Mary, but when Jesus was born, named him Jesus at his circumcision, what does that tell us about Joseph? Simple. He believed. He believed the word. Okay. And uh, I love this, he shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. In the genealogy in Matthew's gospel, notice how it begins, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, there's the king, son of Abraham, to whom the covenant was made. Abraham begot Isaac and so forth. In that genealogy are highlighted all of these sinners. Uh, like Judah, who impregnates his daughter-in-law thinking that she is a harlot. The offspring of Tamar become part of the genealogy. Or Rahab from Egypt, another foreigner. She becomes part of the genealogy. 
identified as mother of Boaz, who becomes husband of Ruth. And then there's Ruth. She's a Moabite woman. So he will save his people from their sins, not just Jews, but all people. There is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, the Savior of all people. All right. Well, we'll, we'll have a few more comments then on the nativity narratives uh, next week, having gone through Luke 1 and this Matthew 1 will take us into Luke chapter 2. Don't forget, 5 o'clock today, New Year's Eve, and 9.30 tomorrow morning, circumcision of our Lord, naming of Jesus, New Year's Day. And then Saturday night at 5 o'clock, did the clipboard go around? Bob has it. Good. And, um, oh, no one volunteered to bring any... Oh, just put it on there. Just, yeah, just write it on there. Say soup and then, yeah. All right, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.